Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 85th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the psychology behind business resilience. I'm fortunate to be joined by Natalie Nahai. She is the author of Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. The publisher is Kogan Page. Natalie is a speaker, author, and consultant with clients ranging from Google to Unilever, Accenture, and beyond. Welcome to the show, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Oh, well, we're going to have a lot of fun, and uh, <laughs> we'll start by having a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. Sure thing. So the book itself explores broadly how we can use behavioral science to harness evolving consumer expectations and help us to become more resilient in our business practices. So it looks at real-world case studies and cutting-edge research um, and gives examples of psychological frameworks and practices that we can use and draw from to help shape, uh, to help shape a better world. Okay. And right in the introduction, you get to the heart of the matter because you say resilience is perhaps best served by living according to our values. And mm. you intimated that we would get to that later, but I'm going to get to that immediately because <laughs> on page 101 of the book, you have a, a key chart from Shalom Schwartz. I know this, but maybe listeners don't. Uh, it's the theory of basic human values. Do you mind walking us a bit through the chart? I don't care if it takes a bit to do so. Uh, explain the chart, particularly in relationship to uh, the themes of your book. Sure thing. So yes, yeah, so Shalom Schwartz, back in 1994, created what he describes as the theory of basic human values. And it's been refined over the decades since. And it's recognizable when you use this platform, this kind of framework, the, uh, the values that we look at are recognizable across cultures and time. And so he suggests that there are 10 basic universal values, which fall under four main kind of umbrellas. The first is openness to change. That's the first big value. The second one is about self-enhancement. The third one is about conservation 
and the fourth is about self-transcendence. Um, and the idea is that depending on who you are, these values will differ in terms of how important they are for you. Uh, and you can use this as a kind of guide to see where you might find yourself more attracted to the continuum to see what are the principles and drivers behind how you live. Okay. And in your book, in fact, you you offer that you can go to thevaluesmap.com and figure out kind of what's your own orientation. Yes. So naturally, I'm intrigued to know what your, <laughs> your orientation is. And then I have maybe a follow-up question or two. Sure thing. So yeah, so thevaluesmap.com. Thank you so much for the plug. That's very kind. Um, it, it's a survey that's based on Shalom's work. And um, and if you take it, you can see where you sit on the map. And so for me, when I do it, I show up um, as valuing more highly the self-transcendence qualities of universalism and benevolence and the openness to change qualities, which include self-direction and stimulation and hedonism. And typically, when you when you look at the continuum, the chances are that you'll find uh, one half of the circle more attractive than another half. And we're usually kind of a selection of values that are adjacent to one another. So it's it's yeah, it's interesting to figure out where you sit and what the uh, the nearest side values that you also feel affinity with are. Well, I'm I'm not surprised that those are yours. I must say, <laughs> for one thing, o- openness as in openness to experience uh, in the Big Five factor yes. model for personality traits tends to correlate pretty highly to intelligence. For one thing, yeah. and so. Uh, uh, psychologists and, and presidential historians believe that Thomas Jefferson, for instance, arguably one of my most intelligent presidents, scored immensely high uh, in that in that factor. Oh, that is fascinating. So you, you mentioned that uh, Schwartz had put this out in 1994, but then you mentioned possibly some refinements. So is that reflected in your your book and, and your thoughts here? I mean, where did he go since 94 and how does that inform what you've concluded about values and his methodology. So when you look at the refined version that we're now speaking about, so the framework that has evolved over time, much in the same way that the big five factor personality traits uh, model has evolved over time, it's more about refining the uh, sub factors and seeing how they show up, whether Ah, it's something which is transmissible across time and in different cultures and space. And so it's really just making sure that what he thinks he's uh, investigating is actually the case. And so it's that kind of inquiry as to refining and making sure that the model that you have is robust and applicable and valid. Um, yeah, but it is super interesting, especially when you start digging into the sub values underneath those four main uh, meta traits. Yeah, no, I, I think it's immensely interesting because after all, with your value system, it's not something you can back away from. It's, <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's who you are. It is how you evolved. It's who your heroes There are so many things that go into that. And, um, you know, how can you possibly be a great worker if you're half there in terms of your values yeah. b- being lived? Yeah. So, so moving into millennials, because if we're going to talk about the workforce, these are the people along with the Gen Zers who are increasingly, of course, dominating the workforce, you know, 70% and and plus here very shortly. So, you know, I'd like to take a lot of hope in the idea that these millennials seem to have some really progressive values. For instance, you mentioned the book, uh, nearly 40% of them would take one job over another based on the company's environmental credentials, going to that one, which, you know, has better credentials in that field. 
at the same time, are we getting set up for some disappointment? And I say that because J David Brooks, who's, of course, a columnist for the New York Times, once made the kind of uh, half joke, as it were. He said, well, you know, we had a lot of faith in the, the boomers and they were going to change the world and don't trust anyone over 30. And he mm -hmm. said, in the end, I'm not sure if we ended up with a whole lot more than Whole Foods as, <laughs> as one indication of reform. What faith do you have that the millennials, and I'm not meaning to be cynical because I, I have complete hope that this is true, but what risk do we run that the millennials and the Gen Zers may seem that way now, but it, it may not hold up? I know that's a tough question, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm curious as to anything that's going to give me faith this will, <laughs> this will happen because I, I want change. Honestly, I think the answer may sound simple and direct, but I think it really is a case of what they stand to lose if they don't affect change systemically in our world very rapidly. So if you're thinking about all of the work and activism that's happened since, well, before the 70s, but that gained a lot of attention and amplification in the 70s around actions by groups like Greenpeace or the psychedelic movement or um, organizations that sought to maybe challenge the ideas of capitalism being the only way forward. These are not old, these are not new ideas, but they are ideas which I think have now become increasingly um, vital and important. And when we're looking at the people who stand to lose the most, if we don't start being more circular in our economies or sustainable in our consumption patterns or ethical in the ways in which we hire people, whatever it might be, what we stand to lose is so extraordinary. You know, it's basically our planet and livable conditions for future generations that I think at no other time in living history have we had um, the, well, the kind of the force of having to reckon with an immediate uh, demise, which is essentially what millennials and Gen Z are having to think about. And a lot of people are even, for instance, choosing not to have children because they're scared about the world that they will inhabit. So I think when you get to that point and um, people realize that without that change, their lives are going to be potentially horrific, then, you know, change cannot not happen. It has to happen. And I think that these generations, with the vitality of youth as well, are most likely going to have to make, make the headway for the rest of us to follow. Sure. Well, there is that old jibe, you know, youth is wasted on the young. But uh, <laughs> I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that they do have to look at what's going on with the climate and uh, it's very serious stakes indeed. It seems to me there's another thing going on here, which is uh, inequality, mm -hmm. uh, economic inequality. We've had all sorts of other inequalities around for a long time, but uh, here in the States, and I think it's true in, in Europe, maybe to a lesser degree, but there's almost like a resurgence of the Gilded Age mm -hmm. where those on top make a lot of money and a lot of other people you know, are not so well off. You mentioned in the book uh, an agile and atomized workforce. And when I read that, mm -hmm. I immediately penned in the margin one more word that began with the letter A, which was potentially antagonized Ooh, workforce. That's nice. Yeah, I think that's, because that's I, true. Be, because I'm thinking about excessive executive compensation. And you mentioned in the book, uh, I, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I think this is essentially what you're saying. Trust really matters. It truly is the, the emotion of business. And yet, if we think there's wrongdoing or a lack of fairness, uh, then we start to run into problems. Mm -hmm. So you then go on to say that, you know, in survey, uh, when you use the two, two terms, competent and ethical, and you looked at NGOs and business world and, and the media and so forth, 
Uh, there were some pretty startling findings. What what were those again? If you could share them with listeners. Right. So that um, the NGOs were seen as ethical, but not competent, and that businesses, broadly speaking, were seen as the reverse. So competent, but not ethical. And I think, you know, this is also why when you see activist brands that clearly have a track record for consistently upholding certain principles that are not just for profit, but also pro-social, pro-environmental, the brands like Patagonia, for instance, or Ben & Jerry's, I think that's why there is so much um, noise in a good way about what they're doing, how they're doing it, uh, and why so many people reference these organizations, because we need change. And it's clear that many of the larger uh, structures of society are very slow to change, or maybe there are certain uh, factors at force that mean that, you know, if you have a lot of money, you can change how policies get written or come out or how they affect you. And so I think there is a huge opportunity for um, values-driven businesses to step in and fill that gap. And we're already seeing huge change uh, just in the realm of, you know, the, the number of people like who are buying from organizations like Nike, who are doing zero waste products, or Brewdog, who are doing carbon negative beer. We're seeing these trends everywhere. And it's something which I think businesses are starting to realize could earn them a huge amount of money and not making those changes could risk their long-term profitability. So it's, it's a really curious moment to be observing these shifts. Yeah, no, I think if you don't mirror the values and preferences of your consumer base, you, you are indeed putting the company at risk. Let's, mm. let's move over in the same focus on millennials and move to customer expectations. So a couple different angles to this, but let's just start with one thing. You said 87% of companies cite rising customer expectations as a primary business disruptor. Yeah. So that led me to two immediate questions. What are the other primary disruptors and what exactly are those rising expectations? Good question. I don't know actually what the other disruptors are off the top of my head because it was. It wasn't we'll forgive you. <laughs> but it's a good question to ask. So I'm I'm going to humbly not speak to that one because um, I don't have the figures hand. Uh, and the second one, the second question was about what are the expectations or? Yeah, what exactly are those? Because I think that's a good mm. chance to, to lead in. Because you, you talked, you know, you have statistics then about you know millennials and what they expect from companies because. Yes. You mentioned that terms are, are loaded, of course. I mean, consumer can mean a lot different than customer. Yes. And citizen can mean something quite different again. And I'm sure you're aware that the you know executive roundtable has moved from talking about shareholder to stakeholder capitalism, uh, fearing that we do indeed have a crisis here yes. and a need for change. So it seems to me that in customer expectations, we can almost open this up to I like the term, you know, consumer or customer citizen and mm. making it a hybrid term because it shows that greater consciousness. Yes, agreed. And I think, you know, when we're thinking about um, consumer citizens and also thinking about individuals who consume. I mean, consumption is it's an act. It's a, a process in which we engage. It's not a defining uh, aspect of who we are necessarily. I think we're much more than what we do. Um, and so I think that that idea, I really like your idea of the citizen consumer or the consumer citizen. But so if we're thinking about what's driving people, um, there are several things that we're seeing in terms of shifts. So 18 to 34 year olds typically tend to hold brands to much higher account for their actions. They also believe that they should engage more proactively with society and its citizens. And if you look at um, the noise that happened back in it was 2018 when Nike worked with Colin Kaepernick, the NFL player who's widely cited as the originator for the bend the knee protests um, in protest of 
racial uh, injustice, police brutality. When they worked with him as one of the faces of their 30th anniversary campaign, a lot of people um, responded with great backlash that a brand like Nike should make such a strong and risky statement, alienating many of their consumers. But what was interesting is, is that in the time since, in those few short years since that time where Nike's uh, stock prices fell, etc., the broader American public, now when you look at the polls, have become more favorable towards these sorts of public acts of social support and displays of um, solidarity. And so we can see that already this cohort is shifting the ways in which culture is changing and moving. And I think when we think about who they buy from, who they work for, um, and how they assess um, what a brand or business is putting out into the world, that's only going to become more uh, powerful, you know, in terms of what they spend and how they earn their money as time goes on. They're going to become a more vocal and scrutinizing cohort. And so businesses have got to kind of step it up. Yeah, well, you know, Deep Throat and Watergate fame said follow the money. Mm. And there was just a statistic in the New York Times that you might find interesting. It was tracking in based on the states here, uh, you know, so-called blue state voters versus red state voters. Mm. And it used to be that the Republican Party uh, spoke to a constituency that uh, had higher annual incomes oh, than than uh, Democratic voters. And it's switched in the last 15 years. That's very so interesting. It, if they are looking for those who, uh, you know, have the money, uh, mm-hmm. it would be seemingly increasingly those who are uh, adopting some more progressive values around uh, everything from saving the planet, etc. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, you you come on to some terms that uh, obviously are very loaded uh, in a you know a cultural context where there's a lot of strife and division and atomization. Uh, cancel culture. Uh, you bring up, but in a different sort of way. And uh, uh, I'd be interested in what you have to say about that, in part because when you discuss it, all sorts of terms come up that are very emotionally laden because you mm-hmm. talk about from the consumer side, there's trust that's broken. There's disappointment that can be you know, ensuing, which is sadness. There is rage, which is anger. And then for the companies, there has to be fear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, so why don't you delve into cancel culture, if you don't mind, and how that what that means in a in a business setting? So this is one of these terms that's um, quite a hot topic, and also contains a lot of uh, or draws a lot of fire and a lot of emotion, and understandably so. So, I've had a variety of conversations with the interviews with the people that I uh, reached out to to write the book, and then other people since, where some people have connected. Uh, the dots between cancel culture and race. So some people have said, well, it's really only white males that get cancelled or white females that get cancelled. Other people have said, well, it's not just individuals and it's not just about race. It's about misdemeanors that contravene the the loudest social norm. Um, It's also about when uh, a business virtue signals or espouses certain values and fails to live up to them. So it's one of these terms which has many meanings and intersects with many of the challenges that we face right now. So when I write in the book about cancel culture, I'm talking more about the social and professional boycott that happens when people withdraw their support very, very publicly on social channels, typically from the individual or entity that is perceived to have violated social justice norms. Um, The problem, of course, with this is that 
often, from my perspective, this is not something I go necessarily deeply into in the book, but I, I worry that when we create a culture in which you can uniformly remove someone from participation, um, obviously on the one end, people who are doing heinous things should indeed be vocally challenged and make reparation. But for all of the people who end up on the other end of the spectrum, so someone makes a comment, a comment that's misogynistic when they're 17 or that's racist when they're young or that's these things are not okay but then where is the opportunity for challenge and to teach that person why these things might not be okay and to be able to move towards uh, a conversation that is more generative that creates civil discourse that educates that brings people to the table because I think ultimately as far as I can tell most of us humans want to live in a world where we feel safe to express ourselves as we are, without bias, without prejudice, and with equal opportunity. And so I think that's why this is such a hot topic, and this is why it's such a complex topic. And so when we're thinking about brands who've made mistakes, um, when they make mistakes, they have to be able to address them clearly, transparently, they have to own up to what they've done and show evidence of the steps that they're taking to to make good the damage that they've caused um but it's, it's an extremely complex and multi-layered area and my opinion is just one of many so yeah that's what i would say about that at this stage no no it, well it's a very volatile topic and mm. yes no, no one likes to be cancelled and everyone can make missteps uh, i guess one has to look for both as you said the severity as well as potential repetition Yes, um, yes. And, and, and who's being affected. But it, it's interesting when you get into apology in the book, because I've had previously on uh, Carrie Cooper, who's also a Kogan Page author and wrote a uh, best-selling book that you didn't expect to be a bestseller, which was about <laughs> uh, companies and their kind of woeful apologies, mm. uh, far too many of them not being quite authentic enough to satisfy us. Yes, indeed. Um, so it's, it's become an interesting burden for CEOs to have to trot themselves out and, and make these apologies, and some are far better at it than others. Mm. Uh, an, another angle from the book, which I thought was really interesting, is how COVID is blurring the lines between the public and the private. We do on Zoom calls see how people are dressed casually. We can see you know, what kind of artwork or other things are on their walls. Uh, there's so many ways in which this changes. And I want to go there in a moment. And I'm going to go there in the context of something which I thought was rather funny, submitted by someone for uh, this book I've just put out called Blah, 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 A Snarky Guide to Office Lingo, because one person submitted that coworkers are, quote unquote, those with whom you spend more time than your own family, but no less well than a mongoose. Um, <laughs> because it's it's so often true that we do work with those people and we don't know a whole lot about their value system, mm. uh, their needs, their motivations. Uh, so it sounds to me like there is a constructive opportunity here, despite all the terrible things involved with COVID. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So about reaching out to other people and really seeing where there's points for connection. Yeah, and and how the the blurring of the public and private mm. could actually have a, a you know a positive wrinkle to it yeah. uh, amidst all this suffering that's going on. Yeah, so I think, and I'm very curious to to hear what your listeners also think about this. I think many people that I've spoken with have anecdotes around how meetings online have become a lot more um, personable, a lot more open to talking about uh, emotional elements or the wider context of someone's life because the pandemic has forced us all to be on our screens and some of us in not very conducive work environments. So, you know, if you've got 
pets that you're looking after, children that you're looking after, or if you're flat sharing and you've got five other people trying to use the internet, it's going to make things tricky. Um, and so I think what's exciting in some ways is that despite all of this um, difficulty in trying to continue to work from home through the lockdowns, the flip side, the positive side, is that I think people have acknowledged that we are so much more than just the persona we bring to work. We are, you know, a function of um, the context that we're living in, the people we're related to, um, the priorities that we have around how to spend our time, with whom we spend our time. And I think there's kind of more of a, a willingness to talk about people's mental states, more of a willingness to talk about the importance of flexibility and why, for instance, you know, when people talk about roles as parents or caregivers, that needs to be given greater attention so that people feel like they actually are seen, that they are appreciated, and that it's not just kind of a reduced persona based, you show up to work and you do your job and that's it. So I think we're taking a much more, there's a potential to take a much more holistic approach as to how we view employees and colleagues. And that's, I think, a, a really good thing. Well, it's funny that you would use the word holistic because that's exactly what I was thinking about yeah. as I was listening to your answer because the problem with the term consumer, it's almost like we're, we're oxen just going around, you know, grinding the the uh, yeah. the, the millwork. And, yeah. you know, I think consumer citizen indicates we have something deeper and uh, more profound going on for us, including yeah. our value system. Uh, and, yeah, the same thing has to be true on the employee side. So you bring in, and I was delighted and surprised by this, you bring in brand attachment and you reference John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth and their work on attachment theory. Uh, you're talking about well-being and the factors that go into that. What does this mean for executives and even managers when they are looking at their workforce now and recasting roles? Uh, how should things like you know attachment to a brand, attachment to coworkers, well-being on a job, uh, sense of values? What does this mean for how those executives should? should, should uh, be open to changing roles? Mm, such a good question, especially in the light of what many economists are naming the great resignation. I don't know if you've come across that. Yes. Term. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, and we know that people have had a lot of time to reappraise their priorities if they are lucky enough to be able to have choice in their work. Obviously, this doesn't apply to everyone, of course. But I think when people are thinking about what do I want out of life, obviously, I think many of us would prefer to spend our time with people with whom we have a good, positive, healthy attachment, we're in good relationship with, that have values that are harmonious with our own, that enable us to feel as though we're contributing to something which is bigger than just, you know, the paycheck, not just extrinsic reward, but also doing something for the love of it. And so if we're thinking about um, what businesses can do in order to bring people back into their work, to, to hire new talent or retain the, the existing people that they have, we need to think in terms of these sorts of principles. So, you know, the attachment that we create to our team members, how do we foster an environment which is psychologically safe, which encourages people to speak up, which uh, enables people to be candid with one another and talk about their concerns and talk about their wider goals and hopes and dreams. Um, also, when it comes to things like purpose, uh, do you actually have uh, yeah, you might have a mission statement, but do you actually have a way in which that mission statement can be broken down into principles which can be um, tested in terms of how you work? Specific things like, sure, we want to be inclusive, or does that match the numbers in terms of people in senior positions of leadership who are also representative of the rich diversity 
of the communities in which we live. So it touches on all of these different elements. And so I think when we're thinking about um, businesses, attachment, relationship, values, similarity and attraction, how we build bridges, how we create hubs where people want to spend their time, these are just some of the things that we need to look at to be able to to create that kind of point of, of gravity to bring people in. Yeah, and I think at one point in the book, if I'm not mistaken, you refer to leaders should think of themselves increasingly as kind of like orchestra directors, and they're trying to yes. bring the best performances out of the ensemble uh, versus a very top-down, you know, uh, executive style that controls people. And as I was reading that, I thought of another metaphor, which is we're moving into the age of driverless cars, mm, and maybe yeah. we, we need to let managers realize that uh, they are not going to be driving the car so much in the future. Uh, mm. that the employees need to have a lot of opportunities as well. Mm. Uh, before we run out of time here, because we're kind of drawing toward a close, I wanted to go one last place, and maybe in part because uh, Thorstein Veblen, who wrote Theory of a Leisure Class and came up with the term conspicuous consumption, mm. grew up in a small town about six miles from my hometown. So I've always been particularly fond of the book and the term. And I wanted to go back to that because as we're talking about value system, there's, of course, always some friction here because there are some people who feel threatened by this or are derogatory and talk about virtue signaling yeah. or you use the term. I think there's a whole portion of the book devoted to woke washing. Yeah. Uh, a hard term to say, at least for me, woke washing, <laughs> but uh, a little bit of tongue twister. So talk to me about you know, conspicuous consumption, conspicuous consumption in terms of you know, signaling one's values how do we navigate through this in a way that is constructive as opposed to, you know, engaging in, you know, kind of empty acts or, or group shaming and so forth? Mm. Such a good question. So conspicuous consumption is when we, well, these days with the advent of social uh, channels and media, it's when we buy products and then use those products or photograph or video ourselves with those products and then put those pieces of content on social channels, on TikTok, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, whatever it is. And it's basically sure. as a means of signaling what we care about. We signal our aspirational ideal self. And people often do it consciously or not to bolster their self-esteem. So this is kind of desire to, to say, look how good I am and, and what brilliant stuff I'm doing. And I think there's kind of obviously there's a good side to this in some ways and a bad side. The good side is that it shows us what people are valuing more. So if you don't want to do loads of expensive research, have a look on Instagram and TikTok for the, <laughs> for the channels of people who are you know, falling into your category of the audience you're trying to reach. See what they're posting, see what they're um, showcasing in terms of the brands they favor, what they wear, what they buy, what they eat. Um, and it gives you a good quick sense of what people care about in that bracket. And then the second would be you know, on the dark side of that is that people can show up and consume in such a way that maybe they're not an expression of their values, but they're trendy. And so people are doing it in effect just to say, look at me, I'm kind of following the trends, aren't I brilliant? And that's where you get into virtue signaling. I think regardless of the, you know, the kind of the desire behind the conspicuous consumption and um, the content that's posted around that, we are seeing positive changes. And I'm kind of at the opinion at this stage where we're having to deal with the crises of the climate and biodiversity loss and food loss, where actually, you know, the ends, does it justify the means? Maybe if this is causing people to buy more products that are, you know, less around meat and more about plant-based stuff or more ethically um, 
you know, the ethical provenance of certain products and going for that over stuff which has dubious provenance, then, you know, if we're displaying those desires and brands respond to them by rolling out better business practices, great, because we need to get there fast. Yep, totally agree. So <laughs> I want to thank you, Natalie, so much. I think our, our time is uh, done, unfortunately. Uh, this has been episode number 85, the topic, the psychology behind business resilience. Uh, my guest, the wonderful Natalie Nahai, she is the author of Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or on the New Books Network, type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight and you can see the other shows and episodes and guests I've had. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an epigram, uh, an appropriate one. In this case, I went for one from Frank Sonnenberg who wrote, remain true to your values. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.